Here is another Patreon preview. Again, we're doing our series Unions and the Mob. This is the second part of this series where we're going over the ILA. In this particular part, we go over some of the early aspects of the ILA and some of the, you know, I guess, history and also mob intertwining and a little bit of rank-and-file pushback. If you want the full thing, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way that we get any funding for this show, so we really appreciate it when you support us there. If you can't afford that, jump in the Discord and message one of the admins, and we would be happy to hook you up with the episodes. As we know, times can become tough at any point. Anyway, here is the preview, and we hope you enjoy. Solidarity. Every morning, a crowd of men looking for work would assemble at the docks, and this would happen in cities all over the world, where agents of the shipping companies would pick and choose how many and which workers they wanted for the jobs that they had. This system was horrible for the workers. It prevented any form of job security or even just regular hours for dock workers, essentially making them show up and beg for their jobs every day, unsure whether they'd get it or have to try and find work at another dock or simply face a day without pay. Irving Bernstein said of it, Aside from slavery itself, it's difficult to conceive of a more inhuman labor market mechanism than the shape-up. Yeah, I mean, it it is really striking um, how much of the responsibility to the workers it just, like, totally severs the employer from. I suppose the the mechanism here, if one of the workers gets injured, is that they try to hide it as best they can, or they just don't receive work the next day. Or if, you know, they aren't presentable, or if uh, that hiring manager happens to be racist and you happen to be an immigrant, or whatever, you know. Yeah, all of those things Mm -hmm. were consistent problems with the shape-up. It's a system really not unlike, you know, the informal system used today to hire uh, migrant workers as day laborers, you know, all around the country paying folks under the table, avoiding minimum wage laws, completely devoid of any worker protection for those folks. And and, and similarly here, you have, essentially, you have to show up to your job every day and beg for work, which is like, A, that sucks materially because, like you said, John, for a myriad number of reasons, uh, many completely outside your own control, you could just show up and even if you'd been doing steady good work for a long time, they could just be like, ah, we don't need you today or you you didn't, you know, uh, give me a kickback or the we've got a new hiring agent and they hate Italians or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting hired, so you're not going to get paid. Or you complained. Yeah, but I mean, even in addition to all that, like which is of course the, the crucial thing, also fundamentally, it's just an incredibly demeaning setup where it, it, it is like the, just being forced to like get in the be obsequious and get in the good graces of the hiring agents every day just to to try and squeeze in you know a better chance for more work. It, it makes it very difficult to build up a sense of dignity about your job. Mm-hmm. And so, on the flip side bosses love the shape up for a variety of reasons. The first, of course, being that it drove wages through the floor. Shipping agents and hiring foremen loved the system because it was such an easy opportunity to extort payoffs from workers to secure regular employment. 
Mobsters found it lucrative both for strong-arming payments from workers, but also to extort payment from shippers by threatening to hold back labor, leaving cargo to rot in their ship's holds if a prompt payment was not forthcoming. But the most important feature of the shape-up for the bosses was the way that it pit workers against each other. By forcing workers to essentially bid against each other for jobs, it encouraged individualism and discouraged solidarity. Now, that last part of it might sound a little familiar to some of our listeners because that particular aspect of it has been revived in recent years in the United States in the social relations of the so-called gig economy, which mirror this aspect of the shape-up by making workers totally dependent each day on the foreman to distribute work In the case of gig jobs, the algorithm serving that function, it encourages workers to compete against each other rather than cooperate, intensifying their own labor to make themselves appear as better workers more likely to receive better work. This arrangement suppressed, and where it's used today, continues to suppress wages, lengthened hours, and discouraged solidarity among the workers, holding back organizing, making shippers extremely reluctant to give up the shape-up, despite how much it was hated by all of the workers. And the shape-up was also one of the first and longest-standing sites of both corruption and labor discipline. Shipping companies took advantage of the rapidly growing immigrant communities in New York City to pit workers against each other on ethnic lines. Workers on the docks in the second half of the 19th century in New York was initially dominated by Irish workers, and even decades prior to the outbreak of the October Revolution and the establishment of the first workers' state, bosses were very eager to root out so-called radicals and agitators on the docks. Shippers used major donations to the Catholic Church to use that organization to promote a conservative ideology amongst the workers and try to suppress report for Irish republicanism, which was seen as a gateway to socialist extremism and labor organization. Mmm, socialist extremism. <laughs> and I, I think this part is fascinating because, again, this is before 1917. This is, I mean, even in some cases before the 1871 Paris Commune. And yet still, anything that the shippers see is against their interest, they immediately are like, this is communism and must mm-hmm. be destroyed. <laughs> even like Irish republicanism, which is just like a normal national liberation struggle there were socialists involved but yeah no absolutely i mean there was there was definitely a socialist current in uh irish republicanism at that time especially you know under the leadership of of greats like like james Connolly. Mm-hmm. but it's all it's just especially funny to see that this is going to lead to socialism like the unification of the liberation of ireland which is like across the ocean well and like, it's, it's, it's that, also that's very, gonna lead to socialism in new york <laughs> it's also very funny that they were like you know who can get a handle on all this the pope <laughs> yes <laughs> well that's actually gonna become a long-term trend in the ila oh no uh, which we'll talk about a little longer the weaponization of uh religious organizations uh in order to suppress left-wing organizing is a long tradition uh, amongst the more conservative uh, members of the ILA leadership. It's also, uh, I mean, that's something that was had airs of uh, Alinskyism when mm-hmm. the way that he did community organizing yes. and specifically organized within religious organizations that way in their very conservative manner. Yeah, and of course, we you can, of course, see the flip side of that, where you have you know, religious organizations 
that are allied with progressive causes for, of course, you know, the civil rights movement in the mm. U.S., liberation theology all throughout Latin America. But unfortunately, most of the history in the U.S. tends to be like the major white churches being used to suppress uh, labor radicalism. Or, you know, uh, turn of the um, 19th century uh, Catholic Church, which <laughs> a pretty yes. conservative organization by and large. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so... In the 1880s, the growing population of Italian workers was instrumentalized by the shipping companies to promote splits between immigrant communities and pit workers against each other. Major dock worker strikes are recorded as occurring as early as 1874, a full two decades before the ILA would be formed. Hoping to keep workers from uniting, shipping companies fostered division between Italian and Irish workers, claiming to each group that the other was trying to steal their jobs. Yet again, where have we heard that one before? Uh, Fargo season four or five? Yeah. <laughs> or just every day of our lives yeah, in that's, this country. That's true. Um, the resultant xenophobia was then weaponized against both sides, really. It's not really one or the other. It's, it's weaponized against both of them. And in 1887, the Knights of Labor, which was one of the very first like national sort of unions kind of oh, we'll have to do a whole episode on them at some point but uh they were one of really the earliest national labor federations that had any sort of teeth or success and and in 1887 they organized a major port shutdown among the irish dock workers however you'll note i just said irish dock workers because they refused to bring in italian and black dock workers as equals which then made it trivially easy for the bosses to break the strike with scab labor because, you know, if you want to walk out alongside your fellow worker and the organization that's leading it is like, oh, no, you don't, we don't want you. Well, I mean, some solidarity, some great organizing tactic there by, by the racists. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, extremely ineffective. Uh, did not work at all and did not really improve conditions for the, even just the Irish dock workers. And so... Part of the way that the shippers, you know, continued to manipulate these, these divisions that they were fostering is they cultivated relationships with English-speaking members of the uh, Italian immigrant community as padrones to keep the workers in line and keep them from organizing for better conditions, basically attempting to exploit, you know, the cultural remnants of feudalism that may have still existed in many European countries a as a way, as a form of labor discipline. And, and almost kind of incorporating them into whiteness. Yeah? No? Not really yet. It, it's like a lieutenant system, kind yeah. of. You see this in a lot of, like, colonial societies where mm -hmm. they take whoever the indigenous population is and whoever's pliable and kind of willing to be to be uh, collaborative with the in, in, uh, the settlers uh, will be given some limited powers and then they tend to be more effective because they know the culture at keeping people in line than someone who just showed up on a boat with a buckle on their hat. Right. Right. And so, and, and, and I mean that, cause that process, you know, before uh, of, of assimilation, you know, of, of Irish Americans and Italian Americans into the broader, you know, white sphere to be weaponized against black workers, that it was, was a long process that really didn't fully finish until like the interwar years and really ultimately not until like the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. But an observer at the time noted 
Quote, a gang of Italians was found to have a deterrent effect upon them. The Irish were afraid of Italian competition. This fear lessened the likelihood of a strike and kept the men from actively resisting abuses, end quote. Yeah, and so eventually the Italian workers would fight back against their exploitation. A strike on the Brooklyn docks in 1907 brought together Italian dock workers from across the port in what became known as the Italian May Day of Brooklyn. But for decades, the shipping companies were able to weaponize ethnic divisions to keep workers from organizing together. And so that was the state of the docks at the end of the 19th century. Longshoremen being exploited as day laborers, forced to beg or bribe their way into a day's work each and every morning, going from weeks of steady pay to weeks of no work at all. The workers were fragmented between dozens of different shipping firms who worked together to keep them disorganized, split across ethnic, religious, and racial lines. Wages were low, job security non-existent, and working conditions brutal and dangerous. And that's the environment into which the labor movement advanced at the turn of the century. It's also the environment that bourgeois politicians in the United States are trying to return us to this very day. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, just look at the you know xenophobic anti-migrant law that was just passed in Florida. Absolutely. It, it, exactly the same shit. Um, now, in the last years of the 1800s, lumber carriers in the Great Lakes came together to demand better pay. These maritime workers, and yes, they count as maritime workers, the Great Lakes are fucking huge. <laughs> They're really big folks. They're called great for a reason. <laughs> uh, and just because, like, uh, you know, though they worked on the great freshwater inland seas of the Great Lakes, they would soon grow at an explosive rate and expand the membership of their nascent organization all the way to the coast, to oceanic trade organizing the National Longshoremen's Association in 1892. This is the very first national-level longshoremen's union in the U.S. And in 1895, three years later, the union absorbed Canadian longshore unions and joined the AFL as the renamed International Longshoremen's Association. And just 10 years later, in 1905, the union had grown to over 100,000 workers on the Great Lakes and both the Atlantic and Pacific coasts. And reflecting its origin on the lakes, the union's first two presidents, Daniel Keefe, who was president from 1892 to 1908, and T.V. O'Connor, who was president from 1908 to 1921, both got their start as Great Lakes tugboat captains. Joseph P. Ryan, who would become the union's longest-serving and most notorious president, was a rising star organizer in the Port of New York in the 1910s, rapidly rising through the ranks and becoming president of the Union's Atlantic Coast Division by 1918. And it's important to note that tugboat captains were particularly necessary in the Great Lakes maritime trade, because although tugboats are necessary at all ports, timber ships in the Midwest had a tendency to get stuck very, very often. <laughs> really? Yeah, they would just beach. There was a famous one in the town I grew up in that we just sold back to Canada like five or six years ago. <laughs> oh, man, that's wild. Yeah, you absolutely do need, yeah, tugboats take on an extra significance in that mm -hmm. part. I, I, in, they didn't mention that in any of the research. Because <laughs> I was always, when I first started researching this, and they're just like, founded on the Great Lakes. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean the ILA started on the Great Lakes? Yeah, there's not so many commercial boats on the Great Lakes anymore, but, you know, like back when Michigan and Wisconsin first started having industry, it was big. It was everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and so, 
while they were the first national union, in the early days, the ILA was not without competition for organizing on the docks. Though they had largely consolidated their position as the primary union for U.S. longshoremen by 1916, through the 1920s, the industrial workers of the world formed a radical pole in longshore organizing, especially in the Pacific Northwest. As we described in our episode on the 1919 Seattle general strike, the influence of the IWW radicals exerted a strong ideological pressure on the organized workers of Washington and Oregon, leading to more militant confrontations with the bosses than at East Coast ports. We don't have time to go into the 1919 general strike in this episode. Uh, check out the, the whole episode we did on it. Uh, but, but while the government's choice to withdraw investment from the West Coast ports at the end of that strike, rather than accept the continued existence of a strong union, did lead some at the time to view the strike as a defeat, it demonstrated the viability of militant organizing on the docks, even where the shape-up existed. Because, of course, at the time, like there was still a lot of discussion of, like, well, you can't even organize longshoremen because of the shape-up. They're just like, it'll never work. <laughs> Thankfully, of course, you know, even by this time, there are already 100,000 members, so that was very quickly proven wrong, and that, you know, given an option, the vast majority of the workers wanted an organization to fight for better uh, conditions. I almost like it when people say, you can never organize this industry. It's structurally <laughs> impossible, because I feel like that gets people's heads kind of in gear, and there's like, well, maybe we actually could, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's like, hmm, sounds like a challenge. <laughs> yeah. People like to be told they can't do things <laughs> and then do them. It's true. It's true. I mean, that revolutionary optimism is really what can uh, lead to great victories. I I'm thinking more about like revolutionary obstinance. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just literally, you know, we can harness the spirit of, you know, I, I want to fight for a better future. It is genuinely very powerful. But I think also we can harness the revolutionary spirit of, that motherfucker can't tell me what I can and cannot do. That's right. <laughs> Hell yeah. A, a nice balance of both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So World War I played an important role in the growth of the ILA, especially on the West Coast, with the shift of so much U.S. trade from the East Coast ports to the West during the German blockades of Entente shipping. The shipbuilding boom and the shift in global trade from the European colonial empires to the young U.S. empire both greatly increased demand for dock workers and helped flood the ILA's ranks. 1919 also showed that the end of the shape-up would be at the center of dock worker organizing for the coming decades, as the workers fought to replace the demeaning labor market with a regulated professional hiring hall to allow for steady job security. The 1919 strike was also emblematic of another dynamic that would continue to reemerge time and time again throughout the history of the ILA, the disconnect between the conservative leadership of the union and the more militant rank and file. You sure that's just the ILA? <laughs> <laughs> well, the ILA is who we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you want references for other times where this has happened, the whole rest of our Patreon catalog. That's true. <laughs> um not only did Sam Gompers and the broader AFL leadership oppose the Seattle general strike, the leadership of the ILA itself, at this time headed by T.V. O'Connor, attacked the Seattle workers for striking, threatening to withdraw their ILA charter for doing so. The rank and file's defiance of the orders from leadership not to strike is an also another characteristic that recurs over and over again in the union's history. As the strike committee wrote in its own history of the work stoppage, the end of the 1919 strike was caused by, quote, 
pressure from international officers of unions, from executive committees of unions, from the, in quotes, leaders in the labor movement, even from those very leaders who are still called Bolsheviki by the undiscriminating press, end quote. <laughs> what a dynamic where you have the, the leadership who's like, actually, we really need to not strike. And the press is just like, these communist labor leaders. <laughs> well, and they're hitting at a very important point that a lot of people still don't internalize today, which is that it's like, if you're on the left, even if you're the lukewarm moderate left, and you think that, another group of leftists is doing something a bit ultra leftist or whatever. Uh, just like adopting conservative positions is not going to endear you to the ruling class. They are still going to oppose your existence. <laughs> like they're still going to call you communists and every other such thing. They call fucking Joe Biden a communist. Like, yeah. <laughs> Which is the, the lesson there is if they're going to call you a communist, you should just study and become a communist. That's correct. <laughs> like you might as well just do it just have better politics they're gonna call you that anyway yeah it worked for me One, two, three, <laughs> yeah so uh you're starting in a much better position though I, I i don't think you ever tried to break any strikes <laughs> that's true i i've done a lot of things but not that <laughs> <laughs> say hey johnny for the battle call United we stand, divided we fall Together we are what we can be alone We came to this country, we made it all This man so humble, this man so brave A legend to many, one to his grave Say family and friends from the hardship and horror In the land of depression, he gave hope for tomorrow Say Johnny me born, this one's for you The strength of many and the courage of a few to what do we owe this man whose fight was for the masses? He gave his life. Say, hey, Johnny, for the battle call. United we stand, divided we fall. Together we are what we can be alone. We came to this country, we made it our own. Friends of the locals who dabbled in crime. He gave you a job, he gave you his time. He wasn't a crook, but he couldn't be kind. John knew the difference between right and wrong Say John need me more, you live no longer Others forgotten, your memory stronger Let's drink to the causes in your life Your family, your friends, the union, your wife Say hey Johnny boy the battle call United we stand, divided we fall Together we are what we can't be alone We came to this country, you made it all Say hey Johnny for the battle call United we stand, divided we fall